Okay, so we are continuing our series looking at um, encounters with the risen Christ and, and looking at how when we experience him and see him uh, as the disciples did, as, as a number of other people did, we are changed. And so Al spoke to us last week and he looked at the people on the road to MS and how um, that story really changed um, them and some of the stuff that we can learn uh, from that. So um, <clears throat> I've entitled this one, uh, Encounter with the Scars, um, because that's what happened. And we pick up a story literally just after the story of a mess. So it actually, if you want to turn in your Bibles, um, all four Gospels have an account of the resurrection, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Some of them are very different than others. Some of them have put certain information in, others haven't. It's really good to go and read all four of them because you get this picture um, not of people trying to make sure that everything lines up and we all have exactly the same story, but of true, real encounters of what people remembered and experienced at the time. And so when you read all four encounters, you get this kind of more holistic picture. But in Luke 24 from verse 33, literally just after the Emmaus journey, it says, um, they got up and, and returned at once to Jerusalem. That's the two that were on their road to Emmaus, and obviously Jesus turned them around. Um, there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And then it goes on in uh, verse 36 to say, while they were still talking about it, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled as it was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, if you want to just quickly turn in your Bibles to Mark, so Matthew, Mark, and we were in Luke, so you need to go back a wee bit to Mark 16, and we're going to read um, another version of this story, uh, and uh, because it probably came from the words of Peter, you'll see that uh, in this one, Jesus is a lot more to the point. Um, so Mark 16 from verse 9 says, When Jesus rose early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared 
in a different form to two of them when they were walking in the country. That's the two on the road to MS. These returned and reported it to the rest, and they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. I kind of quite like that, you know, that Jesus basically told them off um, for not believing. But I'm sure they did as he was standing there. But um, one of the things that we forget when we read a story like this is what the disciples have actually been through and what they're currently in in that moment. Um, because they're all together in this, this one room and they're in the middle of grief. You see, we have the, um, the privilege, as it were, to look back at this story and go, oh, sure, it's, it's all all right because he rises from the dead. But they didn't know that. And in that moment, they were in the deepest grief. They were in shock and dismay. They were blinded by grief to all else around them. Many of us know what those all-consuming feelings are like. And people seek solace in those times in each other, in the comfort of friends, um, and quite often in the same place, gathering round together as these disciples had. But the difference in this story is very interesting, is that there is no detached and unaffected comforter coming alongside them in that moment. They are all collective in their experience of grief. And they were thinking to themselves as, as they uh, mourned, it wasn't supposed to be this way. They're traumatized from what they have seen and heard because each step of the way through the sham trials, through all the things that happened leading up to the resurrection, they were expecting Jesus to do something different. They were expecting him to do a miracle. They had seen him escape oppressors for years. Even in his own time, when they decided they were going to throw him off a cliff, he managed to get away. He could win any argument with Jewish leaders and leave them dumbfounded. They had seen him cast out demons, calm storms, perform miracles, heal the sick, and even raise the dead. And they believed that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited savior of Israel, who would overthrow their oppressors, the Romans, and establish his kingdom for the Jewish people on earth. And so they saw the cross as a defeat. We see it as a subversive victory through the lens of the resurrection and the distance of time. He didn't do what they expected him to do. On reflection, he had warned them. But they often didn't understand. And actually, what they usually had was the ability to kind of go, what were you talking about, Jesus? When he told a parable, I told a story, but they don't have that opportunity to do that now. For three and a half years, they have been following Jesus literally 24-7, living with him, sleeping with him, walking with him, seeing all these things unfold, and now he's gone. And they are in the midst of grief. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis says. Grief gives life a permanently provisional feeling. It doesn't seem worth starting anything. I can't settle down, I yawn, I fidget, I smoke too much. Up till this, I always had too little time. Now there is nothing but time, almost pure time, empty successiveness. And that's from C.S. Lewis' account of a, a grief observed when his wife died. And so in this time, 
when all this is going on, they start to hear stories from the wild-eyed disciples who came back saying that they'd met Jesus on the road when they were leaving. You know, the two that actually just thought we were away home. And um, the women, would, obviously you can't believe a word a woman says, um, especially in those times, because a woman's word was not considered to be taken seriously legally. Obviously, I believe every word that women say, but just in, in those times, 2,000 years ago, okay? You guys. Um, trying to get me in trouble. They didn't believe Mary. They didn't believe the people on the road. And Jesus actually appears to them and goes, you didn't listen to those guys. I sent them to say, this is what's going on. And they're absolutely terrified, funnily enough. And he says, peace be with you. So verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. While they were still talking about this, you know that happens quite a lot in the Bible. Um, like when Peter goes to, to preach um, to the Gentiles for the first time, that he's like preaching and preaching and preaching, and then the Holy Spirit's just like, Peter, let's just do this. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And again, I wonder how much the disciples would have continued to talk and talk and talk and talk around whether Jesus had risen from the dead or not. And he just comes and he appears and says, peace be with you. It's funny how we do that too, isn't it? We just talk and talk and talk around things, trying to solve stuff, trying to sort things out. And Jesus' words come to us, peace be with you. It's what he speaks into every dark situation. These are the words that some people here this morning need to hear, peace be with you. In the middle of your circumstances, the resurrected Jesus stands and says, I'm alive. I have defeated the greatest power on the earth, and I am with you. Your circumstances are not beyond my ability to transform. In fact, the very same power that raised me from the dead is in you this morning. In the chaos and the despair of this world where so many people are struggling in life, we as resurrected new life people are commissioned to speak the words and to bring the presence of peace into all situations. Some of you have been that peace carrier. Others have experienced it. It's not necessarily through wise or persuasive words. It's through a demonstration of the power of the spirit. And sometimes power comes in the form of peace. Resurrection power that can deal with the greatest turmoil, the greatest stress and anxiety, conflict and brokenness. We need it in our lives. Some people this morning need Jesus to say, peace be with you. And our communities need it too. One of the callings that is on us as a church, if we're to follow the resurrected Jesus, if we're to see his life um, replicated in, in ours, is to be that non-anxious presence that brings peace despite circumstances. Because there aren't necessarily any easy answers. In grief, there is no quick solution, but there is the opportunity to experience peace. And so the story goes on. And rather than not believing that Jesus was there, they then turn from seeing that Jesus is there to figuring out, well, it can't really be him. It must be a ghost. And 
because they, they, they just can't process it. They're still emotionally in that place. I don't know if you've ever had this circumstance where you hear some really bad news and you feel just physically, emotionally torn by it. And then you hear that it isn't as bad or it's untrue in some way. Or that you find out that everything's going to be okay. And the circumstance has gone away. But how you feel hasn't gone away. And when you think back to that circumstance in that moment, you still emotionally are triggered by how you felt at that particular time. And I think that the disciples were very much in that place, even with Jesus in front of them. They were still grieving what was lost, even though it wasn't lost. And that's why they needed him, and they needed the power of his resurrection to set them free. And then he does something amazing. He shows them his scars. They were startled and frightened. So this is verse 37. Thinking they had seen a ghost, he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see it. I have. He showed them his hands and feet. And then it's this really bizarre thing. It says, and why they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, because they, they literally just don't have a framework to cope with the fact that the person that they know was very dead for a number of days standing in front of them. And so Jesus then goes and says, give me something to eat. Come on, I'll show you. Like, I really am alive. It really is me. This is not some kind of grip hallucination. So we see Jesus helping them to process it. Their mind's unable to believe what there is, is going on. It's easier to assume that, that he is a ghost than the man raised from the dead. He shows them through his nail-scarred hands and, and the mark on his side and in his feet. He shows them through eating food that he is not spirit only. So what must it be, have been like to see the scars and know that they were for you? personally, that Jesus died for your sin. An awakening of the price of sin, the power of death, but the power of Jesus to overcome it. An awakening of those scars that they're connected with you, but also that your reborn life is connected with those scars too. That you see Jesus physically standing before you, and it speaks of the renewed life that you have the opportunity to live in, that I have the opportunity to live in. But it also speaks to us today of the fact that, that Jesus welcomes us with our scars, that he sees our scars and he's not ashamed of them, that we can hold out our hands, that we can be fully real before him because he takes us where we're at. He's not ashamed of our scars and neither should we be. And this is where we need to, and some of you maybe this morning, need to receive a supernatural revelation of how Jesus sees you, scars and all. That he's not ashamed of his scars and neither should we be. That he will lead us from a place of pain and grief to a place of love, joy, happiness as he fills our hearts and renews us. 
And one of the ways that Jesus does that is that he renews our minds. He opens their minds. And there's this moment where everything that they know, everything they've experienced, all the scriptures they knew from childhood, everything gets completely rewritten in a moment. So this says in verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled as written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. He opened their minds so they could understand scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's literally saying to them, you're witnesses to the pivot point of history. Everything that you've known of history past, the law, the Torah, the prophets, everything that you have learned up until this point, it's almost like he flicks a switch or have we pictures of some jigsaw pieces. Is he drops these pieces in and suddenly everything starts to make sense. And another way that I've been thinking about it this week, it's like almost like somebody knocking over a whole load of dominoes and as they all fall one after the other, the picture looks completely different. It's like scripture, every single thing, because there's a supernatural impartation, a revelation of this is what the Bible says about me. This is what the scriptures say about me. Everything changes in that moment both what they knew from scripture, but actually everything they'd experienced as they walked for three and a half years with Jesus, who they thought was a good guy, a good rabbi, somebody who teaches with authority. Oh, he can do miracles too. They're, they spent three and a half years going, oh, is he the Messiah? I would think he, oh yes, he seems to be the Messiah and he can do this. All of their own experiences get reevaluated and re-understood because of Jesus being risen from the dead and some kind of supernatural impartation that they can see and think differently. And um, this is what uh, C.S. Lewis says about that. The New Testament writers speak as if Jesus' achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. And so this supernatural revelation of who Jesus is that helps him process it, if he can do it for them, he can do it for us. The only way that you can come to faith is that you receive a supernatural revelation from the Spirit. But the only way you can continue to live in faith day after day is if you continue to receive that supernatural revelation. That if God changes and transforms you, if something flips in your head and in your mind, that, that from then onwards, everything that you look at and the way you see things is different. Why? Because resurrection life itself has started to rise up in you. I remember a number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine became a Christian and he said something slightly offensive to me. He says, I never really got or understood you until I became a Christian and now I get you. And I'm like, okay, I'm not really sure how to gauge that. I hope that in a good way, 
it's like what I had set my heart to and my mind to, how I lived and what I was focused on was something that he couldn't relate to until he was on that same path too. I hope that's what it was. And so some of us need a revelation this morning of who Jesus is. Maybe for the first time, we need God to unlock our minds, to bring a revelation. And maybe for the umpteenth time, in our current circumstances, we find ourselves lost. We find ourselves stressed. We find ourselves in a place of pain. And what we need is a revelation from God, a breakthrough in our minds. So if that's you this morning, I'd love to pray. Let's take a moment. Um, let's all close our eyes. But maybe if you need that fresh revelation of who the resurrected Jesus is and what that means for you and your current circumstances. Yes, Lord, I just pray this morning for anybody here that doesn't yet know you. That the stories that we've read about, that they would realize, Lord, you would unlock hearts and minds and reveal the truth that Jesus died. That he died for our sins. That he paid for them completely. That he rose from the dead to become the first who has risen from the dead so that we may too experience new life. And this morning, you can give your life to Jesus and experience this new life if you will open your heart. But God, we just acknowledge too that for us, we need to do this again and again. There are areas of our lives that are not surrendered to you. There are areas of addiction. There are areas of doubt and disappointment. And God, we need you to open our minds again. We need a fresh revelation. We need fresh breakthrough. Would you come Come, Lord, and break through our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. See, resurrection life is not an intellectual thing alone. Our hearts, our emotions, our desires are changed. Jesus is a fully resurrected human being. He goes to great lengths to show that he is fully alive because He's pointing to the opportunity for us to live this fully alive life as well. He showed them a new way to live. And Peter would later say about this, the Peter that was there wrote in one of his letters, and this is 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. absolutely love these verses. Peter said to the early church, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Participate in the divine nature nature, to be like God, to be like Christ, not to pretend to be like Christ or give the impression of looking vaguely like Christ on our best day. There is something supernatural and powerful that is said here that comes through what Jesus died and rose again for, that it's not just the forgiveness of our sins, 
It is the opportunity to participate in the divine nature. So rather than just trying to be a good person, we have the ability to be a good person placed within us who is the Holy Spirit. And our job is then to figure out how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to participate, to co-partner in the divine nature that is within us, made in the image of God, filled with the presence of God, called to live the way of God in our lives. That's the bar, and the bar is really, 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 really high. We would much rather it was low, wouldn't we? Try to do a few good things. Don't get into too much trouble. I'll be back. That's what we want Jesus to say. But he, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And, and Peter, who's got it by this stage when he's writing to the early church, goes, we actually get to participate in the divine nature. We don't get to just try and try and try and try really, really hard until, until we die. So we've got to figure out how to live into this because I don't think it's that easy. Um, but Jesus defeated not only death in his body, but the power of sin. He is the firstborn from amongst the dead, as it says in Colossians 1, verses 17 to 20. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile him to himself all things whether things on heaven, things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is the head of the body, the church. So we're actually part of him and we're called to participate in the divine nature because the power that would keep us back from doing that has been defeated through Jesus' death and resurrection. He is the gateway to a life reborn open to all disciples. Maybe their minds at that particular time when, when Jesus was telling them all, all this stuff went back to Nicodemus, um, where, where the, we get those famous words from John 3, 3. Jesus replied, very truly, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, or born from above, be another translation. And this is a life that we're called to live. This born again life is actually not a kind of, you're given a second chance, you need to really work hard at behaving. It's a supernatural thing. We need to see the world completely differently, and we have the wee specs on there. Um, so, just checking on my time here. I'm getting to that age where you realize you can't see with your glasses on and you can't see with your glasses off because your eyes are like wrecked or something and that you need like very focal glasses. And, and so when you first get them, so from the, the top of my lens, I can see um, far away, but if I want to see close, I have to look through the bottom of my lens. It's effectively how I think they work. Um, but they say you're gonna have to get used to these. Be careful going upstairs. And, oh, sure. I'll be fine, and you're like walking around, and you feel like everything's all weird. But so you spend the first few days thinking, "I'm never going to get used to these glasses," you know, when you're like walking like this, because 
you're not sure where your feet are going to land because they're in between the different lenses. But eventually your brain goes, oh, this is the way we're seeing things now. And, and, and there's one day when you kind of go, oh, I'm not really weirded out or like thinking everything's out of focus anymore because I've got, my, I've got used to these glasses. They fit me well. I, I'm able to see well. This this works. I can see things that are close, and I can see things that are far away. It's like a it's like a revelation. And I think at times that's what the Christian life feels like. You know, you start reading stuff in the Bible, and you think, "How am I going to do this? Oh my goodness, this is really difficult and complicated." But sometimes, I even maybe we just get a little glimpse of what you think. Oh, see for like possibly thirty seconds to a minute there. I did that whole Jesus thing really well. Um, and sometimes that extends beyond an actual minute of time because we have to live into, we have to get used to, if you like, we have a new body, we have a new mind, we have a new spirit, and we have to grow up into living this new born-again life. Um, Eugene Peterson puts it like this when he says, maturity cannot be hurried, programmed, or tinkered with. There are no steroids available for growing up in Christ more quickly. Some of us really wish there were. Impatient shortcuts land us in dead ends of immaturity. But we are called to grow up into Christ. To truly follow our rabbi in every way. Many of these men who we read about, who were there when Jesus was risen from the dead, literally went and did what he did. And bore the scars on their own bodies as they did it. But the difference was that they were no longer afraid because their encounter with the risen Christ helped them to understand that the power of death can't affect us anymore. Death has no fear for them because it has been defeated by someone who has opened the door and in fact who is the door between heaven and earth and it can never be shut. That Jesus is the way to eternal life, both now here on earth and forevermore. And so the people who actually abandon Jesus when he's being crucified stand up for him when they experience resurrection life in their own bodies. And so my message to you this morning is that resurrection power is available to you. The disciples understand themselves differently, their relationship with Jesus differently. They understand each other and the world differently. Everything changes with an encounter with the risen Jesus. Not only that, but resurrection power enters their lives and their hearts. They're experiencing resurrection when they see Jesus resurrected. For them, for him it's just being raised from the dead. For them it's been alive for the first time. Truly alive for the first time. See, Jesus lived a sin, sinless life. He took on our sin and he died and he rose again. We have lived a sinful life. We have taken on his resurrection and for the first time we live. And that's why it says in Romans 6 verse 14, for sin should no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. It doesn't say sin will no longer be a problem, but it says that sin will no longer be your master because sin itself is defeated. They now have the power and we now have the power to do what they previously had imitated badly. 
purpose of a disciple is in those days was to follow their rabbi and, and imitate him. But now, rather than just imitation, they get to be him. We get to be him. Because he himself, the Holy Spirit, is described as the spirit of Jesus himself is living in us. And when we experience resurrection power, anything is possible. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. But we must grow up into the image of Christ, ourselves resurrected and continuing to rise from being a baby in Christ to being someone that looks like the resurrected Jesus. Born from above, this new picture helps us to realize that it's a process. But our goal is to walk like Jesus walked on this earth. And at the end of time, the life of Christians is celebrated in heaven with these words from Revelation 12, verse 11. I don't think it's on the screen, but it says, they triumphed over him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Why? Because the spirit of the living God himself had come and taken residence in them. Or as Jim Elliot, the famous 20th century martyr missionary, wrote in his journals, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, we can choose resurrection life or we can choose the religious life. We can choose rule keeping or we can choose radical living and the weird thing about all of this is sometimes we choose the religious life and the rule keeping over the resurrection life and the radical living and do you know why because when we choose a religious and rule keeping life i'm in charge i'm the boss i get to figure this all out myself when we choose a resurrection life and the radical living, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ himself is the one that leads and guides us into all truth. And we spend our entire lives doing this, don't we? We spend our entire lives figuring out what it looks like for resurrection life to come in and through us. And so the band's going to come up. And I would love us to think about how we might respond this morning to this, this opportunity to participate in the divine nature, to come before God and say, I'm trying really hard to do this, this, and this. And I acknowledge I'm doing that in my own strength. And do you know that that's actually a sinful posture when we try to do things in our own strength, when we deny the power of God in our own life, that we need to repent of that attitude of independence um, and in, invite him again. And we take our current circumstances and we bring them before the resurrected Jesus and we say, Jesus, here's the mess. Would you come and sort it out? Would you come and bring me life? Here's where I need it right now. I want you to be Lord again and I want to try and figure out how I grow up a bit more in faith. But why don't we stand and let's worship. <clears throat>